Have you ever listened to an episode of Livewire and thought, gosh, this sounds good, but why couldn't I have seen it and watched it being recorded in real life? If you've ever had that thought, I have good news for you. If you're going to be in Portland this autumn, fall 2018 season passes are now on sale. These are tickets to our entire fall season, and we have some incredible shows lined up with guests like Hari Kondabalu, Phoebe Robinson, and Dan Savage joining us on the Livewire stage. Uh, Livewire season passes are also significantly discounted from individual tickets, and they guarantee that you will get a seat for every show, even if it's sold out. Last season, we sold out every single show. So this is a great way to save some money, help support Livewire, and make sure you're going to get a ticket to each and every one of these shows. We like to think of the Livewire season pass as a, as a gym membership for your mind. So join me and Elena Passarello and the whole gang for a new season of engaging conversations, live music, and original comedy that you do not want to miss. The first 20 people to buy their season pass will receive $10 off. So do not wait. Click the link in the bio or visit livewireradio.org to buy your season pass today. One more time, that's livewireradio.org. And we'll see you this fall. Hey there, everybody. Welcome to Livewire. This week, we've got another podcast short for you from the Livewire archives. Whoever writes this line for me writes the Livewire archive. I like to call it the archives. I like you all to think of it as just a series of huge buildings that are kept at a certain temperature. It's the Livewire archives. I think it's probably like one computer on one person's desk in Portland. Um, so here comes another podcast short from the Livewire archives. This one's from April of 2013. Um, it was when I talked to writer and uh, humorist Simon Rich. Uh, I am like such a Simon Rich fan, I cannot even begin to really put it into words. I'm one of those people that when I'm reading through The New Yorker and I see that Simon Rich wrote something, I stop whatever it is I'm doing and I sit down and I read that article. I do not wait. I do not let myself get distracted because everything that Simon Rich writes is comedy gold as far as I am concerned. When he was finishing his undergrad at Harvard, he got a two-book deal from Random House. He was a writer for Saturday Night Live. He's won two Writers Guild of America awards. Um, and his latest book, Hits and Misses, which is a collection of stories based on his life in Hollywood, uh, was released last month. In this interview that we recorded with Simon, uh, we talked about the book that he had just recently released at that moment, which is called The Last Girlfriend on Earth. It is amazing and hilarious. It's a collection of short and sometimes fantastical stories about modern romance, including the tales of an underachieving Cupid that really wants to be a hip-hop promoter, uh, and also what it would be like if your girlfriend was literally the last girlfriend on Earth. What would the implications of that be? Uh, the book was uh, ultimately adapted into a series on FXX called Man Seeking Woman. So with all of that being said, take a listen to this, my conversation with Simon Rich. <laughs> Simon, welcome to Livewire. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me. Are you just ecstatic at the idea of getting older so people will stop talking about how youthful you are and just how funny you are? Because if you're a 50-year-old guy, you're just funny. But if you're 28 as you are, 
you're, you know, precocious, and it's sort of the obsession of everyone who's older than you. Well, I think the biggest thing is that I'm so young looking. Uh, so, I mean, I, I guess I shouldn't admit this to a radio audience, but even though I'm 28, I look like I'm between 14 and 15 years old. And, and I think that's, that's generous. And so I, I think, yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, I, I think the bar has always just been a lot lower for me. I mean, you know, I, when I was in eighth grade, I, I was. I was doing uh, fractions, and people thought I was the most brilliant kindergartner you know, they'd ever <laughs> seen in their life. I was like, little man Tate, you know. Uh, and, and, now, you know I, and now I seem like a pretty clever 14-year-old, you know, so I'll, t- I'll take it. This book of yours, um, The Last Girlfriend on Earth, I have to say, is so deeply funny to me. I was reading it on the airplane, and I was sitting next to this mom and her daughter, and the daughter was going to visit Lewis and Clark College here in Oregon, and I was laughing so hard that I was convulsing and also crying some. Did TSA come out? (laughs) They zip-tied me by the end of the flight. (laughs) And they were upset that they were talking to each other for most of the flight because they would look over and there was just like a guy crying and reading this book of yours. It's, it's incredibly funny. Congratulations, by the way. It's Thank a real you. accomplishment. It's, it's really nice of you, and thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Um, one of the things I've noticed in reading a lot of your writing is that you seem to really love to write in the voice of characters who are really bad at communicating verbally. Yeah, it's, that's, that's a total act, because really I'm like great at communicating, <laughs> and I just make the characters that way. Because I'm, like, good and smart with words and stuff. <laughs> but when I write the stories, I make the, the guys bad at, bad at the talk stuff. So you do write in a, a character in this book, which I think one of the most, uh, one of the most sort of perfect stories in this book is the story of a, um, a condom that's in a kid's wallet. <laughs> Yes, uh, that is a piece uh, called Unprotected. Uh, the first piece of The New Yorker, uh, I was told, ever to be written from the perspective of a condom. Um, uh, I, I could read the very beginning. Would you? Yeah, sure. This sort of says, says it all. Um, I born in factory. They put me in wrapper. They seal me in box. Three of us in box. In early days, they move us around from factory to warehouse, from warehouse to truck, from truck to store. One day in store, boy human sees us on shelf. He grabs us, hides us under shirt. He rushes outside. He goes to house, runs into bedroom, locks door. He tears open box and takes me out. He puts me in wallet. I stay in wallet long, long time. Uh, that, that, one's, that one's pretty autobiographical. Yeah. <laughs> the kid in this story has a different name than yours, but it felt to me as I read it to be deeply autobiographical for you. You are a very perceptive literary critic. <laughs> I, uh, I, I don't know how you piece that together, that the, the socially awkward uh, nerd virgin in the story was... Had, had parallels to the author's life. But, um. The character that you portray yourself as, for instance, you wrote a Shouts and Murmurs 
piece really was sort of four pieces called a sellout or selling out. Sellout, yeah. And it is a really fascinating way to take on your modern life, which is this idea that if your great-grandfather had somehow been sort of frozen in time and then actually what happens is he's trapped in a pickling barrel, I believe, in Brooklyn. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it, that, that story is told from the perspective of my, my actual real great-great-grandfather, Herschel Rich. Uh, and uh, he, he comes uh, out of abject poverty from the old country, and uh, he comes to Brooklyn with five pennies in his pocket and works day and night to try to make a better life for himself and hopefully his ancestors. And in the story uh, on page two, he gets uh, stuck in a pickle jar for 100 years. Uh, Pickle barrel. He's not like yeah. He's not microscopic. Mini- he's, he's not miniaturized. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. It's been a while since I wrote it. So I forgot yeah. my pickle terminology. I don't want people to think the story's unrealistic. No. It's <laughs> a lot of research went into it, and uh, and then he goes and he meets. Uh, he, he he you know he's been preserved, so he's in brined. So he's he's 27, and he meets his great great grandfather, who's this guy Simon Rich, and he does not like him. Uh, See, I think he <laughs> likes him. He just doesn't understand him because uh, Simon Rich is such a titanic douche. Yeah, that's true. I mean... The I, fictional Simon Rich. Well, that's what I'm wondering. Is this the time <laughs> when it's fiction? Well, I don't know. I mean, you know. Because you're writing about this character, Simon Rich, who's a screenwriter, which you are. You work for Pixar, who has, you know, these sort of imagined problems that compared to the guy who'd been in the pickle barrel for 100 years yeah. are non-problems. Right, exactly. Well, the, the, you know, the, the first thing he's upset about, it, well, he, I tell him that, you know, he asks me what I do, and I say, well, I'm mostly I'm a script doctor. And he says, you know, I'm so... You know, he starts to cry. He's so moved that his, his ancestor would have the education to become a medical doctor. Uh, and I tell him, no, I'm, I'm writing uh, jokes for a movie uh, called Ice Chimps, which is about <laughs> monkeys who learn how to ice skate. And he's less enthused. But do you, to any degree, actually perceive your life as a writer and as a creator of things that are funny as being as worthless as you make the Simon Rich character? In that? I think so, yeah. I think it's pretty worthless. <laughs> I mean, I really love to do it. I, I feel incredibly lucky and uh, blessed that I get to do it for a living. I really i am thankful for it, but uh, in part because I'm not good at anything else. I, uh, really, but, though? Because, like, your brother's a very acclaimed novelist. Your dad is a, is a writer. Your mother also. You come from this really good stock. It seems that you <laughs> could probably do just about anything you want. That's, that's really generous of you. Thank you. <laughs> uh, NFL linebacker. Take that uh, off the list. <laughs> but other things, non-NFL related, <laughs> probably so. I guess my question is, if you do, it's fun to do, but you don't maybe feel like it's the most important thing that goes on in the world? I think that's right, yeah. I, I, um, I love to read. I, I love to write. I, I feel... Um, when I was a six-year-old, I, all I wanted to do was, was copy Raul Dahl, and I used to uh, literally uh, transcribe his books and then change the buy Raul Dahl and make it buy Simon Rich and try to pass them off as, <laughs> as my own. I and, did that with a Dave Barry column uh, yeah, for my I, high school I, newspaper. I, I rewrote yeah. a Dave Barry column. I love Dave and, Barry, too. And yeah. turned it in as my own work. Yeah. And couldn't believe that the mid-40s Caucasian English teacher had also read Dave Barry. <laughs> I was like, how did he figure this out? Exactly. <laughs> you know, if I could tell my six-year-old self that over 20 years later, I could still basically plagiarize Roald Dahl, you know, and, and be able to do it. 
full time. I, he'd be psyched. That Shouts and Murmurs piece you wrote about Jimmy and the giant tangerine <laughs> seemed uh, fairly derivative. Yeah. Yeah. Joe and the Popcorn Factory, too. Yeah. So. One of my other favorite parts about Simon Rich's new book, The Last Girlfriend on Earth, is a, is a missed connections piece that you, that you write. And this is sort of, for folks that um, don't uh, go on the internet as much as I do, this is where if you saw somebody who you thought was Foxy out at the, uh, you know, wherever it might be, you, and you, but you didn't get their name or their number, you could go write a little ad that shows up in usually alternative weeklies or maybe um, Craigslist or something like that. But these were, these were written from a different perspective, right? Yeah, the piece is called Dog Misconnections. We actually, um, we've got a few of them here presented by the uh, Faces for Radio folks. Dog Misconnections. East River Dog Run. Saw you at the dog run yesterday morning. You were wearing a leather collar and running around in circles. I was wearing a gold collar and trying to have sex with you. <laughs> at, at one point, I managed to mount you and we sort of had sex for a couple of seconds. You shook me off, though, and ran away. I'm, I'm interested in getting to know you a little bit better. We obviously have chemistry, and though we just met once, I really sensed a connection. I'll be back at the dog run tomorrow morning. I hope to see you there. FDR Drive. I saw you out of the window of my master's car during a traffic jam. We barked at each other for a while. I thought you made some interesting points. <laughs> Would love to meet up sometime for a casual, low-key date. Maybe we could go to Central Park together and eat garbage off the ground. <laughs> Open to anything. <laughs> 75th Street and Park Avenue. Spotted you yesterday afternoon helping a blind human cross the street. I can tell you've got a gentle soul and a caring heart. Would love to mount you violently from behind and have aggressive sex with your body. Astoria behind the Taco Bell. Saw you by the dumpster eating a pile of what looked like human vomit. You seem like someone who doesn't take himself too seriously. Not sure if you're male or female, but either way, I'd love to smell your genitals. Let me know if you're intrigued. 83rd and Broadway. Hey, I saw you a few hours ago, tied to a parking meter outside Zabar's. You had a large cone on your head and seemed frustrated. Life's too short for drama. I think you're cute. Let's meet up sometime and forget about our worries for a while. I am neutered BT dubs, uh, but no one ever complains. Smiley face. Faces for radio. Reading the work of Mr. Simon Rich here on Livewire. So um, you were, for a time, a writer for Saturday Night Live? Yeah, four years. Uh, 2007 to 11. What is the thing that you wrote to get them to hire you on? It was uh, my first book, uh, which was called Ant Farm. And uh, it was this collection of uh, uh, weird short pieces. A lot of them had been in magazines. And uh, uh, 
I, I had never written for actors before. And uh, they took a chance on me based on, on this, this weird book. And uh, it was really fun. I, and, and, but I had a huge learning curve because uh, I didn't know how to show stories visually. So I had a lot of scenes that year that started off with people being like, here we are at the dog track, you know. <laughs> uh, like, so like, it was a pretty steep learning curve for me that first year. There's a, a lot of sketches that year of, of just people talking to each other in rooms. I didn't realize you, know, you could cut to things. Now, the, the word about Saturday Night Live is that it can be a notoriously cutthroat place for the writers and actors trying to get their work up on the show. You don't seem like a cutthroat guy. Uh, it's not so cutthroat as the truth. Um, I mean, it's, people are really nice. People, people taught me a lot. I, uh, I, I mean, I think it's, it, it, was, it was easier for me because I was so visibly terrified. Uh, <laughs> Well, they thought a baby had come to yeah. write on their show, and so they, and they were, all, yeah, were they trying to treat it gently because they have a soft spot. Exactly. So I, I think they went a little easier on me. Uh. Did you have a lot of things that you wrote that you thought, oh, man, this is great, and then it didn't get on, and you kind of couldn't understand why? Oh, yeah. Uh, it, it ultimately, most of those instances, it, it, the reason turned out to be the quality of the writing. Uh, uh, in, in hindsight, uh, I remember my first, my first week at the show, um, the very first sketch I turned in, uh, LeBron James, uh, back then a, a Cleveland Cavaliers uh, star, uh, was the host. And uh, so I wrote uh, a sketch for, for uh, uh, Bill Hader and Amy Poehler. And, and uh, the premise was that they were a married couple and they had a memory foam mattress and, and, and Bill was really upset because when he went to work, the indentation of his body in the mattress was perfect. But when he came home from work, there was always a LeBron James-shaped <laughs> indentation uh, on his side of the mattress. And it went, it went to dress, uh, and it... it dress it, meaning dress rehearsal. Sorry, yeah, it's dr almost on getting onto the real show. Almost, but it didn't quite make it. And uh, afterwards... Uh, uh, Seth Meyers, the head writer, was really nice. And he said, the next time we have a host who's 6'8", 340 pounds, <laughs> we'll try it again. Why did they shoot that idea down, do you think? Um, I mean, you know... It's... I wonder if it had to do with race. <laughs> I mean that quite seriously. Like, I wonder, yeah. is that the kind of thing they think about? In other words, like, we're trying to make a joke here, but it could come off as seeming like this guy's threatened because LeBron James is African-American as opposed to just right. being an enormous guy or very uh -huh. famous or popular. Do they, does that like subtext play into it or are they just strictly going off of is it funny? That's a them? good question. That's really interesting. I mean, I don't think in, in that particular instance it, it had anything to do with it. Because um, you, can, you can read when the audience is chilled by something. You can tell pretty quick when an audience is offended. They, they, call, that a, they call that a live wire crowd. <laughs> <laughs> they make a sound like... <gasps> <laughs> Uh, and so you know, like, oh, whoops, we crossed a line somewhere. Um, but I always had the experience at SNL of the thing you think is so edgy uh, comes across as totally tame and, and boring and almost cliched. And then, like, the sketch you write uh, about, like, shopping carts, you got, like, a thousand letters from, like, the shopping cart Institute of America telling you that you, you know, you ruined their lives. So you, you really never knew like where the hate mail was going to come from. <laughs> it was always surprising. It always came in. It was just surprising, surprising who it was from. Yeah, it yeah, came from, the sure. Return addresses, yeah. 
you, uh, you wrote a sketch that I, I thought was really uh, brilliant, which uh, was a game show where it's called, uh, what's, what's Their Name? Yeah, What's That Name, yeah. And it starts off very kind of simple, like the, the contestants, uh, it's a man and a woman, the man's Paul Rudd, and the woman is... Um, uh -huh. Uh, uh, an actress from SNL. Vanessa, Vanessa Bear. Yeah. And they're ju they're just identifying kind of famous people, and then the twist happens, which is uh, which is it's like their doorman, uh, <laughs> or like for the guy, it's like his seven interns who like have worked for him for a summer, and they do not know their names. <laughs> they're offering like ten thousand dollars, and it's like the. Uh, it's the African American doorman in the guy's building who he sees every day for years of his life. Yeah, who like knows his children by by name, and he and Rudd just strikes out. Yeah, I, I'm sort of surprised that that one went all the way because it led to a lot of uncomfortable silences. Uh, uh, not one of the most successful reoccurring sketches in SNL history. Uh, but yeah, it's incredible when you you write 50 sketches a week as a staff. And um, about seven make it. And so you have to write each one thinking this is going to make it. You have to work that hard in each one. Um, and and when, when it goes out there, uh, it's pretty miraculous because people put so much work into it. The, the crew and the sets and costumes, and they bring this thing to life. I just feel really lucky that I got to see some of that happen. Do you guys get mad as the writers when the actors start cracking up? in the sketch that you've slaved over? I mean, for me, uh, I mean, yes, <laughs> is, is the answer uh, for me. <laughs> uh, but, I mean, the truth is I'm, su I'm such a bad actor that anyone who can go out there and do it, I'm just, like, floored. Because I would be uh, shaking and just weeping if I had to go out in front of a camera. Here's, here's how bad of an actor I am. I have a couple friends who wrote for 30 Rock, and they uh, decided that they were going to base a character uh, on me. And so and his name was going to be Simon. And so I get this call, and I'm on, I'm on the eighth floor, and they say, uh, why don't you come down to the seventh floor to audition for the part of Simon? And I bombed it. I, I didn't even get a call back. Oddly, they cast LeBron James. They cast LeBron James, and he killed it. Yeah, he killed he did. it. He really did. Yeah. Simon Rich, ladies and gentlemen, his new book is The Last Girlfriend on Earth. All right, that's going to do it for this Livewire podcast short. A big thanks to Simon Rich for being amazing. Uh, for more information about Livewire or how you can listen to our podcast or sign up for our newsletter, head on over to livewireradio.org. I'm Luke Burbank. Thank you so much for listening, and we will see you next week. Livewire is supported in part by Fully. Have you ever noticed how kind of not great you feel after you sit at work all day? truth of the matter is your chair is probably part of the problem. Most chairs and desks, they restrict movement, which leaves your body kind of achy. Now we'd like to tell you about Fully, designer and collector of standing desks, chairs, and other workspace tools that encourage you to move so you will feel better at the end of your day. Uh, I use a Fully TikTok stool when I am recording these messages, and it has really changed my whole kind of physicality. 
After a long day, and I know it doesn't sound like a real job, maybe because it isn't, but after a long day of recording things at my home studio, sitting on a TikTok stool, I feel great. I don't feel like I've been ossifying for the last eight hours. I feel like I'm ready to go take on my evening. Uh, so I can't recommend Fully highly enough. Get your body moving in your workspace like I've done. Go to Fully.com slash Livewire. That's F-U-L-L-Y dot com slash Livewire. Fully. Desks, chairs, and things to keep you moving. PRI Public Radio International.